Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today is one of two special podcasts of the MIT Press in conjunction with Open Access Week. And today I'll be speaking to Catherine O'Hearn, Catherine Dignazio, and Lauren Klein about the new work, Data Feminism, which is on the PubPub website. Catherine O'Hearn is a content lead at PubPub. She's part of the PubPub team and the MIT Knowledge Features Group. Catherine Dignazio is Assistant Professor of Urban Science and Planning in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Lauren Klein is Associate Professor of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. If during this interview you hear a bit of background noise when we talk to Catherine Dignazio, who we will refer to in this interview as Catherine D, and Catherine O'Hearn as Catherine A, it's because Catherine Dignazio had to take this call uh, while she was en route to another conference, so you might hear a little bit of background noise. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Catherine Dignazio, Lauren Klein, and Catherine O'Hearn, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks, So my first question is going to be to Catherine O'Hearn. It's been a year since we've talked about the platform PubPub. What has happened within the last year? Have you found its mission of collaborative publishing continue to thrive? Oh, yes. Uh, So thanks for that question. Um, The PubPub team has had an incredibly busy year uh, developing the platform based on user feedback and experiments we've engaged with, like, this open peer review process with data feminism. Um, And we've actually seen a huge uptake on open peer review projects at various stages. So um, that's something that we're hoping to continue to support and develop more functions uh, in order to support uh, open review and different types of review. Um, I've also really enjoyed seeing our community like really rethink the ways that we even think about collaboration. So, like opening up titles and drafts at various stages of the process, um, using PubPub in classrooms for teacher-led student discussions, um, introducing new types of peer review. In in the recent months, I would say I've I've been a part of a lot of different conversations about living books um, or monographs that will continue to like evolve uh, after being. I guess I'll say made live. I don't even want to say published because we associate that so closely with final. But um, you know, how can we put things up and allow a community to um, change it and to grow it even after it's been published in print? Um, and I, I just really love that our community and you know the the group of people that are using PubHub right now are really pushing us to rethink these terms and um, you know inform exactly what our roadmap roadmap looks like. Um, and we, we are actively developing better uh, import-export features. Uh, this summer we rolled out, uh, my favorite new feature is the, the ability to group content. So chapters or articles um, as books or journals or issues or you know conferences with metadata, um, like ISSNs or ISBNs or DOIs, uh, which hugely helps with discoverability. So uh, one common assumption I hear and I often see kind of floating around on Twitter and other platforms is that uh, you'll, you'll be sacrificing impact or discoverability when you opt to publish openly um, and, or on PubPub. And uh, that just doesn't have to be the case. So um, sorry, I know this is kind of a long answer, but uh, we've been really busy. And the takeaway is that we're learning so much from our community um, and really making sure that that informs uh, what our what our features are and how we're growing. 
So let's talk about the project at hand, uh, Data Feminism. Uh, Catherine Gnazio and Lauren Klein, you two are the authors of Data Feminism. It's supposed to take a physical corporal form by MIT Prep from MIT Press next year, but it's currently on PubPub. Uh, why did you choose to put it there? Sure. I'll start. This is Catherine Dignazio. Um, you know, it's a, a sort of happy accident that uh, the press actually approached us and said, you know, hey, we have this really interesting experiment and in, in open peer review and publishing. And what do you all think um, of, of putting it up for review in draft form? Uh, and it was quite aligned. So a lot of the principles that you know, the things that PubPub is sort of experimenting with, open publishing, open access, uh, public peer review, um, are things that are very aligned with feminist principles. So like one of the principles coming out of our book is to embrace pluralism, meaning like welcoming many diverse voices into a knowledge making process. And so we found that that was very aligned um, with it and kind of inviting people into our process, even though, you know, publishing a first draft publicly is like a super scary uh, <laughs> a super scary prospect um, but ultimately it's it's much better for it um, Lauren I don't know if you have anything to add to that as well yeah I mean I think to follow up on that <clears throat> another feminist principle is that sort of all knowledge is incomplete right no single person knows everything and this is true of individuals in the world and it's true of authors it's true of everyone right um, and if you're trying to get closer to sort of this idea of, you know, not the truth, but sort of closer to uh, more complete knowledge, the best way to do it is to incorporate multiple perspectives, as Catherine said, right? So, um, you know, this idea that we could put this book online and that we really could learn from and incorporate the knowledge of other people who were not me and Catherine, um, that was really appealing to us. And then the other thing I'll say also, you know, academic publishing, all publishing is slow. Um, and, you know, the issues that we talk about in our book are happening right now. They were happening two years ago. And so in addition to the sort of conceptual alignment, it let us get some of our provisional ideas sort of out in the world and engage with conversations that were unfolding as we were writing in a way that, um, you know, had we waited until March next year, when the book will come out, sort of some of the some of those conversations would have changed already, um, and in fact have changed. But at least we tried to sort of shift them a little bit with the draft of our book. Well, this question is for you, Laura, and of course, Catherine D. You can come in as well. So, with this question of bringing in new perspectives, I and mean, can you give readers a sense who maybe aren't part of the academic publishing world or even publishing world overall? When you would, if you submitted this book to the traditional peer review, do you have a sense of how many people would have looked at it? in a traditional peer review versus how many people had a chance to look and comment on open access? Yeah, um, well, I think Catherine A can give the specific stats in terms of the number of users and uh, comments. I don't know those off the top of my head, but in general, when you send a manuscript out for peer review, it's usually sent to two or three or, you know, sometimes rarely, you know, four people. Um, those are experts in the field and they write back sort of a written report and an assessment of the book. Um, but what you don't get um, are people who, first of all, haven't been asked. Um, and so, you know, might actually know a lot about the thing you're talking about, but they just weren't the ones who got the email from the press. And you certainly don't get more than the, you know, two or three people who have been asked to comment. Um, and so by putting it online on PubPub, we got, you know, 
both, and we can talk a little bit about this more, you know, we did ask, we did write to people we knew whose ex expertise we valued and said, hey, this draft is going to be up there. Would you mind taking a look? But we also got people who just found the book or came to it because they were interested in the topic or who said, I actually know a lot about this and I have some things that I would like to tell you. Um, you know, and it was dozens, you know, I don't know, Catherine A, if you could, if you know, like what, 40, 50, 30 people who, who had stuff to say? I don't have the exact numbers for the book overall um, in front of me, but there were, on your preface alone on the PubPub site, there are 117 comments on one chapter. Um, there were over 200 views of just that one chapter of your preface. So comparing that to the two or three or four, um, you know, closed peer review peer reviewers that would normally look at a manuscript, um, you know, of course, you know, all the views you get on a site don't necessarily, um, you know, translate into valuable feedback, but it's still, it's quite a different path and, it, and it's, it's quite a, it's much more open than the normal traditional publishing uh, peer review process. And I guess one other thing to say, too, is that in addition to the comments that you can see on the site, we also got emails from readers who wanted to say things to us privately. So, you know, it is true that the form sort of shapes the kind of comments that you get. Um, but, you know, people did uh, sort of put, take it upon themselves to send us things that they sort of didn't feel would fit in a comment box or they didn't want to make public. And I, I should also uh, say that you know, we have engaged with a few different types of open peer review um, experiments. And data feminism has by far been the most successful one on the platform. Um, and I do think it's because the authors, um, you guys did put so much time and, and thought into exactly how it is you wanted to shape and direct the kind of feedback you received. And you, you know, you posted a, a thoughtful kind of intro on the landing page to the book that talked about why you were doing this and, and what you wanted to get out of it and who it was for. Um, and you did, you know, give people a clear avenue for reaching you privately. And so, you know, you posted about it on your social media and that got a lot of attention as well. So um, there are lots of different things that went into making this what it was and actually collecting all of that feedback. So let's talk about the title itself. Uh, Catherine D., uh, the book is called Data Feminism, but is it fair to say that while it certainly looks at how data can be marshaled and presented to promote feminist causes and ideas, at its core, it's more interested in the question of how power is wielded in data science, whether in collection or visualization. Is that accurate? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I do think that's accurate. One of the things that we, we write about very clearly, um, you know, people come to the term feminism from a lot of different places, <laughs> um, and so and it's a word that's, that's like can be very charged and politicized and provocative, and um, people bring different things to it. Um, but one of the things we try to be very clear about in the introduction and subsequent chapters is that feminism, as bell hooks would say, is for everybody. <laughs> so um, we're not only talking about women in the book, um, although we do do a lot of talking about women and certainly a lot of talking about gender. But ultimately, if we're looking at forces like sexism, we have to also consider how other isms, like racism or classism, also um, impact sexism. Um, that's 
really been one of the key contributions of black feminists um, over the past 20, 30, 40 years is saying like, hey, listen, we can't consider sexism in isolation and all women don't have the same, you know, kind of experiences of the world. So we have to look at all of these different dimensions. And so ultimately what, what we're really considering is <clears throat> how power is differentially distributed and how the people that work with data science and the institutions that work with data science are really not uh, representative of the population as a whole. And then thinking about what are ways that we can uh, rectify those gaps. Lauren, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, that's a great encapsulation. I mean, I think the the one thing maybe I would add on to that is, you know, it's not that, um, you know, it's not about feminist causes, but it is about power. It's about that feminism is about power. So I think sort of rather than present those as sort of in opposition to each other, I would say feminism sort of when um, sort of constructed in the way that we do, which is in keeping with the way in which black feminists and intersectional feminists have discussed feminism, you know, because it's concerned with, um, you know, why certain people have power and certain people don't, where, you know, by certain people, we can talk about women, we can talk about black women, we can talk about people who occupy all different positions in society. Um, sort of the reason why inequalities come into being is it doesn't have to do with individuals, right? It has to do with the systems of power that sort of lend um, sort of authority and other kinds of um, uh, other kinds of things to certain types of people and sort of take it away from others. So, Lauren, in that answer, you talked about intersectional feminist, and the term intersectionality comes up in this work quite a bit. Could you give listeners a sense of what you mean when you say the word intersectionality? Sure. So this is a term that was coined by a black feminist legal scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and it describes, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a metaphor or a, I guess even a simile, it's literal, it's how different aspects of a person's identity intersect, right? So, you know, no person is defined by a single identity, nor are they defined by the same identities of anyone else in the world. And it's, you can't look at these things in isolation, right? You sort of need to look at all of the different aspects of um, an individual and how they literally, um, you know, like an intersection, um, come together and intersect and intertwine. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think the other thing that's important to say, so this was this concept that was uh, named by Kimberly Crenshaw, but it was discussed, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years before, right? So a lot of different thinkers had identified how you couldn't just talk about all women together, right? Um, but Kimberly Crenshaw was the one to give it this really powerful and vivid name. In that response, can you, you know, Catherine D, since I have you here, can you give me an example of how reframing data science from a feminist perspective can actually lead to different outcomes of decision making? Sure. And, you know, what we talk about is um, thinking through the whole process. So, I mean, what's kind of interesting is that this book began from trying to look, it began from a paper that we wrote. And the paper was called Feminist Data Visualization. And because both of us are coming out of um, design and mapping and scholarly work that has to do with visualization. And so we wrote this paper, Feminist Data Visualization. And then we realized, you know, it sort of grew bigger because we realized, you know, you really can't do visualization that's feminist if the things that come prior to the visualization part are flawed, right? So uh, visualization is a kind of communications design-based output 
from a much larger kind of research-based knowledge-making process that is includes like asking questions, collecting data, analyzing the data, cleaning the data, um, and then you know making something that communicates the data. Um, and so we really felt like we had to step back and really consider that whole process and think about like what are points of intervention along that whole process. Um, and so thinking about things like even what questions get asked. You know, one of our uh, arguments in the chapters that are about power specifically is that, you know, to be able to collect data is already a very resource intensive operation, right? So who gets to even wield data or collect data at scale? Uh, we call these three institutions, uh, basically corporations, uh, governments, and then elite institutions. So already just in kind of like from a, the perspective of allocation of resources, we have certain institutions who are sort of empowered with data and then other institutions, say like community-driven institutions, nonprofit organizations, journalists, coalitions, and so on, that are in some sense, you know, what the scholars, uh, Kate Crawford and Dana Boyd will call uh, big data poor. So there's like the big data rich and the big data poor. So, so even just starting from that basic premise of thinking like these resources are not distributed equally, um, it also means that research questions even are not distributed equally. Um, and so we have a number of different ideas for how to sort of redistribute those things. But a lot of what we try to do is call attention to all of those things that in a, in a sense come before uh, we even start down the path of doing a data science project, if that makes sense. Um, no, that does yeah. make sense. Uh, Lauren, is anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, just to give a specific example of this and sort of to show how things can get complicated really quickly, um, you know, thinking about this this sort of question of, you know, who's, uh, you know, data rich and data poor, you might say, okay, um, then let's try to rectify this balance, right? Let's try to collect data, um, you know, on some people who don't have data collected about them so that we can try to make things more equitable, right? Um, and in general, that sounds like a great idea. And actually, you know, there are some really good uh, examples of people who are trying to call attention to a real injustice that has been overlooked, again, because of power, right? So an example we talk about a lot in the book um, is the example of femicides or people who are killed because of their gender. Um, and this is something that we give the example of um, a woman in Mexico who's just who's dealing with the issue um, in a Mexican context. Um, the government just wasn't collecting data on this issue. And because there wasn't data, um, they couldn't sort of justify political change. Right. Um, and so she said, well, I'm going to collect this data and I am going to um, you know, use the data to call attention to this issue and then ideally wield this data in the service of creating legislation um, and, you know, other modes of um, other th interventions that we can do to make this happen less. Um, and so that's a really good example of where um, she sort of entered into this power differential and said, I'm going to create this data. But then the flip side is also true, right? Um, so we see this right now in this huge debate about facial recognition, right? So um, the work of um, Joy Bolamwini and the Algorithmic Justice League has done a lot of work to show how images of Black people and Black women in particular are significantly underrepresented in all of the data, the image data that's used to train uh, facial recognition software. Um, she has a video that you can watch that shows how um, the the camera on her computer literally doesn't recognize her face, which is she is she's dark skin. Um, and so, you know, this is a situation where you'd say, oh, you know. 
we can we can try to create more data here, rectify this imbalance, and yet think about what computer vision and image recognition software is used for. Um, it's used in general for surveillance, for policing, um, for all of these applications that we already know um, are wielded disproportionately against um, people of color and other people who sort of lack power in society by police departments, um, by you know. Uh, security surveillance, things like this. Um, so that's a situation where just adding more data sort of is it without uh, contextual information and without thinking about the applications, that sort of would take you to, to a worse place, arguably, um, than a better place. Um, and so this is another situation where uh, sort of another feminist principle, just looking at context um, and thinking, at, again, not about individuals or sort of the, you know, sort of the, the data themselves, but the larger context in which the data are created and employed um, sort of helps to show how you could ultimately have um, a more equitable outcome. So Lauren, can you help listeners follow the work that you're doing? How can they follow it? Sure. Um, so both Catherine and I have, uh, we're on Twitter. I'm Lauren F. Klein. Um, Catherine, you should spell your username. <laughs> my my username on Twitter is Kanarinka, which is uh, South Slavic for female canary. It's K-A-N-A-R-I-N-K-A. And then we're also in the process of um, making a website for our book, and you can read about the book on the MIT Press website. And um, pretty soon you should be able to pre-order it. And Catherine A., if people want to follow more work, want to follow the work that Pup Pub's doing, how should they do that? Um, yeah, well, the best thing that they can probably do is follow our newsletter, which you can sign up with, uh, sign up for directly from our homepage, pubpub.org. Uh, we send it out about every two weeks. Um, we don't share your information with any other lists. And we usually highlight new functions on the platform and highlight new publications and experiments like data feminism um, from pub-up communities. Um, we're also fairly active on Twitter at the handle at pubpub, P-U-B-P-U-B. Um, and we're also going to be around at some conferences. So um, that, those, that information is also listed on our website under events. Catherine Ahern of PubPub and Catherine Dinazio and Lauren Klein, the authors of Data Feminism. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having us. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2019, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.